Good morning. It's a blessing to be here this morning. Good morning. It's uh, to you that are live and to you that are watching online. It is a joy and a gift to have Sunday morning. I don't know if you all realize it. To be reminded in the midst of the chaos of our world that there is a God who is seated on the throne, that there is one who is in control, that there is one who is fulfilling his will and purpose in the earth, that there is one who is walking with us through the midst of the chaos and the confusion who's promised he would never leave us, he would never forsake us, he would be with us always to the end of the age. There is great solace to gather together in his presence and to sing his praises. The Bible says he inhabits the praises of his people, that God comes and he habitates among us and he manifests his presence to us. And there's nothing greater we need in this world than the presence of our God. And so I'm thankful to be here with you this morning, thankful for this congregation. Thank you for your partnership with us in the gospel, your prayers for us, your financial gifts to us. Uh, Christian mentioned that um, we had a major milestone in our country, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And um, I am involved in a ministry where we minister the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ, the healing of Christ, the men, women, and families that have been broken by abortion. And in the midst of our world, there's a great healing that is needed. And God wants to move by his spirit and capture hearts and change lives and transform people. We need laws that are changed to reflect what God would want, but we need hearts that are changed. And the church is the only one that has the power through the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring about heart change and life change in the midst of a world that desperately needs Jesus. I um, love coming, and I come, I get the, the privilege of preaching some of my favorite passages of Scripture, and so today will be uh, no different. I'm going to preach from Matthew chapter 16. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. But I think for, for many of us, as we've walked with the Lord, for some of us who have walked with the Lord for a while, sometimes our hearts can get cynical. Sometimes our hearts can get apathetic. Sometimes we can get indifferent. Sometimes when we think of the promises of what Jesus has said to us and we look at our current lives, we feel like Jesus has let us down. When we think of verses maybe like John 10, 10, where it says that the thief has come in to steal, kill, and to destroy. But then Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, that you might have the overflowing life of God flowing to you. But some of us, if we're honest and we look at our life and we look at where we're at and we look at our circumstances and our situations, we don't feel like we're living that abundant life. In fact, we may look around at a world of people who don't even acknowledge God, who don't know God, and it, it actually looks like they're really enjoying life. And it seems like we're struggling through life, and life is hard, and life doesn't seem to make any sense. And if we were honest, we thought life would be different than what it is. And so for many of us, maybe we have begun to back away from the Lord. Maybe we've begun to pull back. Maybe we are not all in like we once were. Maybe we just got our foot in one side, and then we got a foot on the other side because we're trying to fix this thing and figure this thing out. But what God wants us to know is that when we can't trace his hand, when we don't know what's going on, he wants us to remember that we can always trace his, we can always trust his heart. We can always trust the heart of God for what he has already done and the things that he has promised. And the one who has done these things and promised these things, he will, in fact, bring them to pass in his time and in his way. But the thing is, we're short-sighted and we're limited. The thing is, we don't understand all that God is doing and neither can we see it. That, that God's ways and God's thoughts are higher than ours, as high as the heavens are above the earth. And sometimes we're trying to make sense of what God is doing, and we're kind of left to this place where we just feel like nothing makes sense. But God wants us to lift up our gaze. God wants us to remember there's a perspective of life that's different than our perspective. Ours is limited. Ours is temporary. His is full. His is eternal. And what I love about this passage here in Matthew chapter 16 is it causes us to begin to think about life from God's perspective and not from our own limited perspective. And I pray that as God ministers to us by his spirit, even through my lips, that he will lift up our gaze, that we will see him more clearly, that we will once again put all our chips to the middle of the table and say, God, I'm all in because there is no one better than you. There is nothing better than you. You're the essence of life. You're my only hope in this world. 
So let me pray, and we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 16, looking at verses 13 through 27. Well, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your presence here with us this morning. We thank you, God, that you are the king and you are seated on your throne and you are ruling over all, that you've never been caught by surprise, you've never been taken off guard, you're not walking a path on the floor trying to figure out what you're going to do, neither are you patting your brow, that you're the God who has ordained the end from the beginning, that you are the God who is working out your plans and purposes even in the midst of what looks like chaos and confusion and distress and disorder and even darkness. You're the God who shines your light in darkness, who causes your life to overwhelm death, who causes your hope to push out hopelessness, who fills the heart of your people with joy even in the, most, in the midst of the most sorrowful situations, who can give us peace when everything looks confusing and chaotic. You are our God, and we acknowledge you, and we look to you, and we ask you this morning to, to speak to us. We ask you to manifest your presence to us. We ask you, Lord, to uh, open our eyes to see you like never before and draw our hearts closer to you closer to you than we ever imagined we could be. So God, we thank you in this hour, and we ask you to have your way in our midst. Minister to your church, strengthen your people. And if there are any here this morning that don't know you, I pray that you'd reveal Jesus to them in a way they can't refuse, resist, or deny, and you would be at work drawing their hearts to him. So we thank you, Lord, and we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to walk through this passage little by little, and we'll kind of break it down and kind of see what God is saying. So we'll look at verses 13 through 17 of Matthew chapter 16, and it reads as follows. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. When we think of walking with God's perspective in life, we can often think it's the questions that I ask of God and it's the answers that he gives to me that would help me to really live with God's perspective. But I love it here that Jesus isn't being asked questions by the disciples. He's actually being the one asking the questions. And it's the answer to the question that Jesus asked, which I think, which I believe gives us the beginning to God's perspective in life. I want us to realize that Jesus, when he asked this question, he asked it in this place called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was in the upper extremities of Israel. It was in a place where there was uh, pagans. People didn't believe in God. There were Syrians and Greeks who were a part of the population. And it was a place where people revered man. And they revered Caesar, the emperor. They had actually set up a temple, and, and Caesar was worshipped there. And in this place where man was reverenced, Jesus would ask his disciples a question. And he says, what's the word on the street? What, what are people saying about me? And when they said what they said about Jesus, they said, you're, you know, you're, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're Jeremiah, you're one of the prophets. They, they were kind of on track, but they were missing it. They said, we know that God's hand, the people believe that you were called by God, you're a prophet, but they weren't really going to the full extent of who Jesus was. And I love it that when Jesus asked the question, he doesn't really correct them as to what the people says. He then moves on to those who are following him. And he poses the same question to them. And he says, but who do you say the son of man is? Because you know what? We live in the midst of a world and there's many different opinions about Jesus. Some people think he's a good teacher. Some people think he's a, um, a good man. Some people think he's a good religious teacher. Some people think he's a lunatic or liar. Some people think that he's a myth. Some people think he's a legend. But you know what Jesus is most concerned about? Not with those who don't know him think about him, but those who claim to be his people. What, what do you say about him? 
And so when he poses the question to his disciples, Peter, the one who is always jumping to answer the question, answers the question. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And what he's saying to Jesus is you are the one that we've been awaiting for. You are the one that the prophets told us about. You are the one that was promised to David that he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne and his kingdom would rule forever and ever and ever. And even on top of that, of being a man who's going to be a king, you're more than that. You are God. You're the son of the living God. You're the son of the father who is God and you are God who has invaded this planet. And so Peter gives this answer of Jesus being the king, being the Messiah, being God. And then Jesus says to him that you didn't get that answer on your own. You didn't get it from your study. You didn't get it from living in this world. You didn't get it because of who your father is. For you to get that revelation of who I am, that had to come from God Almighty himself. And for any of us that are sitting in this room today and we recognize who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, the king that God promised who would rule over his people for all of eternity, that he is the son of the living God who invaded planet earth from heaven, the one who was in eternity, who entered into time, the one who left his throne in glory and entered into a fallen, broken world where he was blasphemed by men. If we recognize him to be the almighty God in human flesh, the, the, the God whom the very heavens couldn't contain, who would take all of his deity and put it in a human body and invade the planet that he made and walked on it. If we realize he is that, then that's a gift that has come to us by almighty God. There is nothing that we can boast about, nothing we can brag about about. It's the fact that God has opened up our eyes and enlightened us to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He is the King who will rule, rule over all creation for all of eternity. That's a gift that has come from God. Peter's knowledge of who Jesus is came from God. The knowledge we have of who Jesus is, if we know Him in that way, it's come from God as well. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus says this, that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. So if we know the Son, then there's been a revelation by the Father to us of who the Son is. But then Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son. We can't know the Son except the Father give us revelation. And we can't know the Father except through the Son. In John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there are many opinions in this world of who Jesus is. But the question that Jesus would pose to us today is, Who do you say that I am? And I love it that he asked them this question not in a synagogue, not in the temple in Jerusalem. He asked them in a place that was hostile to God. Because for many of us, we can gather together on a Sunday morning and, and we can almost parrot back what's being said of who Jesus is. But the reality of who Jesus is doesn't just flow from our lips when we're gathered together in Sunday morning around other people who worship him. The reality of who Jesus is is when we step out of this place and we roll into hostile places in classrooms, on our jobs, in our communities, in our world, who do we say about Jesus then? Who do we say about Jesus, not just with our lips, but what does our life declare to others about Jesus? Does it declare to them that he is God, that he is the son of the living God who has come to take up residence in me, who is living his life? And because of that, my life is radically different than everybody else. I don't blend into the backdrop. I don't give in to the other opinions of man. I live by God and what God says, and that is tempered through my life, whether I'm gathered together with his people, or I find myself in places where there is a lot of hostility towards God. I love it. He gives, Peter gives the right answer of who Jesus is, and I think that is the beginning for us to understand God's perspective. It's just the beginning, because we need to grow and we need to move on. But once we come to begin to recognize who Jesus is and to begin to know what life is with God's perspective by knowing the essence of life, Jesus Christ, he does something amazing. Verses 18 and 19, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It was almost as if Peter, when Peter gave the right answer of who Jesus is, that Jesus, once we come to know who Jesus is, guess what? It's almost like Jesus says, now I can tell you who you are. Do you realize that if you don't come to know the author of life, the source of life, the only one who can reconcile you to God, Jesus Christ, you will never understand who you are because you've been made by him. You've been made by him. You've been made for him. Without knowing him, you can have no idea of who you are in this world. But when Peter says to him, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, he says, now I'm going to tell you who you are and what you've been brought into, Peter, that is much bigger than you. I love it. In verse 17, he called Simon. He called him Simon. And he said, you're the son of Jonah. Simon is the Greek, a Greek name, and the Hebrew name of it is Simeon. And what this word means is reed-like or grass-like. And what it hints at is human weakness. And what it denotes is that, Peter, you're one who is easily swayed by the wind. You're one who's easily swayed by the currents of the water. That's who you were before you met me, Peter. But I'm going to give you a new name. You're not Simon anymore. You're Peter. Because you know what Peter is? Peter is a rock. Peter is a pebble. Peter is a stone. And what he's pointing Peter to is that... Before you knew me, you could be easily swayed by the opinions of the world. But now that you know me, the true rock, you're a rock and you can't be swayed. It denotes a character that is steadfast and immovable because it's planted on something that is greater than itself. And then he says, on this rock. So he tells Peter that, that you are Peter and on this rock. So what is he meaning by on this rock? So when he calls him Peter, it's rock, but it's the word um, Petros. And when he says on this rock, he uses another Greek word, Petra. And, and what Petra means, it's a collection of rocks. It's not just a single rock. Petra is a collection of rocks that are knitted together to make one single slab. So what he's saying to you is, you are Peter, but on this rock, on these combination of rocks where there's going to be one slab, I'm going to do something. I'm going to build my church. See, Peter, on the revelation of what you say of who I am, the Christ, you're not going to be the only one who's going to profess that. There's going to be others that profess that. There's going to be the apostles who are going to lay the foundation for the church. Jesus Christ himself will be the cornerstone of the church. And on that foundation, I'm going to put all these other little stones on top of it. And on these stones, what I'm going to build is a dwelling place where my spirit can live on the earth in a special way through my people. So he was saying that on this rock, and, and we become a part of this rock because anybody that knows Christ, you're one of those stones that have been built up on the foundation and the cornerstone so that God can be a dwelling, can dwell inside of us and use us on this earth. He says, I will build my church. And church is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia means a people that are called out from the general population to serve in a governing capacity. So he says that that you're a part of my church, you're a people that's been called out, and you're a people that have a governing capacity in the world. I want you to think of it like an embassy. Think of it, the U.S. has embassies all over the world, right? So the U.S. has an embassy in China, and where the U.S. embassy is, and that part where the embassy is, the values and the laws of the U.S. are lived out among the people who are there, even though they're in a foreign land, they, are, they, they represent the United States of America. And what God wants us to know is we're a called-out people like an embassy, that, that though we may live on this earth, this earth is not our home. We are aliens. Our true citizenship is in heaven. We're alone way from heaven, but we are to legislate the laws and the rules of God right here on the earth where we are. And he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against you, that there's an authority that's coming from the enemy, but the authority of the enemy is not greater than the authority that Christ gives to his church, and that in the midst of the darkness and the chaos of our world, God has given us authority that we can make pockets on this earth that are like heaven because we pray and join him and pray that his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in 
heaven. The gates of hell cannot withstand the church as the church executes the authority of heaven here on earth. And he says to Peter and he says to you and I that I give you keys of the kingdom of heaven. He gives us authority as his servants to make binding decisions in the entrance of the king, in the interest of the king. That Jesus, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, has opened up a door for people to come out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And God has given us power through the proclamation of the gospel to invite people to come into this kingdom. That we have power and authority that we can move things on earth in accordance with the agenda of God. That we can be joining God in prayer and we can be joining God through his word and the preaching of his gospel to see the kingdom of God coming even in the midst of a falling world. That we don't have to be like those who would stick our heads in the ground and act like everything is falling apart. That in the midst of the chaos and the confusion, God has called us to be his people, executing his authority, preaching his kingdom, praying for the values and the, and the will of God to be done on earth, for his word to go forth, and lives to be changed even in the midst of the chaos. That Jesus has redeemed us by his grace to be his church, and he's called us to be his church to bring about his kingdom in the world. See, church isn't just about us gathering on Sunday morning. We are the church The church is the agent through which he executes his kingdom authority in this world. Will we do it in our homes? Will we do it in our communities? Will we do it in the places where God has called us, partnering with him to do what only God can do in the midst of the chaos? Verse 20 through 23, it says, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So Peter gives this right answer of who Jesus is. Jesus begins to explain to him and the other disciples of who they are. And then right afterwards, Jesus says, but don't tell anybody. And verse 21 says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So one thing to keep in mind is we're learning to live with God's perspective. It can be confusing. Because guess what? We come with our own thoughts. We come with our own expectations of who we want God to be and how we think he should operate in our lives And in our world, we come with those things right away. And Peter was no different. So Peter gives this right answer of who Jesus is. And this is what Peter is thinking when he gives the answer. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. We're under Roman authority. We're we're, we're subjected to the Roman government. If you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, you're going to sit on your throne. You're going to head to Jerusalem. You're going to run those Romans out of here. You're going to sit on your throne and you're going to rule. And since we are your 12 closest friends, then we're going to have the best life right now. That was what Peter was thinking in his mind, because that was what was thought of Messiah. He was going to be this military leader who was going to take over and he was going to restore the righteous rule of God among his people right now. That's what Peter was thinking. But that's not what Jesus was getting ready to do. So Jesus says, don't tell anybody right now because you don't really understand what you're saying. How about us? How about today as we live in our world? We have all these expectations of what our life should be, what our world should be. We live in America with the American dream to be prosperous, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if Jesus is in my life, shouldn't he help that to even be more greater than it would be without him? We have all these expectations of what we want Jesus to do. And we often can mix the American dream with God's kingdom, and the two often aren't compatible, but we mix them together and think everything should work the way that we want. We should be the people in charge. We should be the people running things. We should be the ones through whom politics should be working in our favor because all of these things should be going how we want. What are some of the conclusions we've come up to or you've come up to in your life or you've come up to about this world because of the fact that Jesus is in your life? 
that you know the right answer of who he is. You know him to be the king. You know him to be the son of God. What are some of those things as you look at your life, it says my life should be like this based on the fact of who he is because we mix that in with the reality of God. But see, I mentioned that the knowledge of who Jesus is is just the beginning. See, some of us, we, we've said prayers and we've invited Jesus to come into our heart. We've said he's our savior. We said he's our Lord. We've kind of smacked him a high five, but we've went off living life our own way and kind of doing our own thing. We try to figure this thing out without Jesus. We don't spend much time in his word. We don't pray much. We come to church. We may listen to a sermon. But outside of that, we're trying to figure out how to live this Christian life out all on our own. So all the sources of what we hear begin to play into that. What is Fox News saying? And what are all these different people saying? Because that's what I'm I'm using as the framework to live my life. But what Jesus begins to say to them is you got to keep listening to me. Don't make your own interpretations. Don't try to figure this thing out on your own. So you understand that I'm the Messiah, but let me tell you what that means. Because you have your own idea of what it means. The world has its own idea of what they think Jesus should do in our life, but Jesus tells us what he wants to do in our life. So we got to keep walking with him. We got to stay close to him. We got to keep listening to his word. And when Jesus begins to tell them what's really going on, it blows their mind. So Jesus says, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And I bet they're like, all right, I know you're going to Jerusalem. Let's do this thing. And then Jesus begins to flip the script on them. I'm not going to sit on a throne. No, I'm going and I'm going to be turned over to the religious leaders. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to raise from the dead. And they're looking at Jesus like, what in the world are you talking about? Because that goes contrary to everything that I know. So Jesus contrasts for them. Jesus reveals the nature of the Messiahship. See, they, when they thought of Messiah, they thought of a king. Some of them thought of a prophet, that, that the one that Moses would talk about, the prophet who would come and proclaim God's word among them. But they never thought of one who would suffer. And there were Old Testament passages that would talk about the suffering of one. And they never correlated it with the Messiah. Psalm 22 would, would have these words that start out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One that who would be treated as a worm, whose clothes would be cast for, 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 for dice. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about one who would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. In Zechariah, it talks about a shepherd who would be struck and the sheep would scatter, but they never correlated these things to the Messiah. But the Messiah would be not only a king, but it would be a king who would come in to literally die for his people. That the king would come and he would humble himself and he would take the sins of the world upon himself and he would die because in this kingdom, he wanted people to be a part of it. But people can't be a part of God's kingdom because of their sin because God is holy and God doesn't tolerate sin. So God, in order to make a way for people to have an invitation to be a part of his forever kingdom, would send his eternal son into the world who would come in the flesh, who would bear our sin, who would die, who would suffer on behalf of those who deserve to die because of their disobedience against God. And he would lay down his life to inaugurate God's kingdom, that the door to opening the kingdom wouldn't be him ascending upstairs to a crown it would be him actually descending and being lifted up on a cross for the whole world to see. What they didn't realize is that Christ's death is necessary because of the eternal messianic rule of God. Jesus came to make access to the kingdom of God available to all people everywhere. He didn't come just to give us a better life on earth. He didn't just come to fix our circumstances. He didn't just come to make situations compatible to what we want to be. We were people who were dead and separated from God. And what he came to give us was a life that we could actually know God, the true God, and Jesus Christ whom he had sent, for this is eternal life. That's what Jesus came to give us. Many of us, we know this life, and we're still running after the things of this world to try to find life, when life in and of itself, the very essence of life, has been given over to us. we got to be a people that continue in God's Word, because God's Word has to be the priority. 
if we're going to gain a greater understanding of God's perspective. And then Jesus says this, and Peter's reaction to Jesus. You know, in one moment, we can be those who say, Lord, I love you. You are my king. You are my God. You reign. And in the very next moment of life, we can be jumping in God's face and saying, God, what are you doing? Because it wasn't supposed to go down like this. On one moment, Peter is praising him because he's the son of the living God. The next moment, Peter is rebuking him because what you're saying to me isn't compatible to what I want. Things get tense in our life when God's word refutes those long expectations that we have. I want us to realize that our natural thoughts of living in this world readily, they don't flow to what will bring God glory. They flow to what will make us feel good. They flow to what will make us look good. They flow to what will be comfortable to us, what will be security to us. And so when Peter hears this, Peter becomes upset. Why is Peter so upset? Because it looks so radically different than what he's always believed that God would do in his life when Messiah showed up. Because he's upset, because it changes what his own life will look like. He didn't sign up for this. He didn't sign up for a Messiah who would die on the cross. He didn't sign up for a life that would be hard. He signed up for something that would be so grand and so glorious, and it went against the face of everything that he said. How many of you have faced disappointments in your life? And you've said, beforehand that, Lord, I love you and I'll follow you no matter what. And then something happens contrary to the way you thought God would do it. And all of a sudden it's like, God, what are you doing? Do you even know what you're doing? God, I don't like this. I don't understand it. And right now I really don't want to walk all that closely with you. You know, that happened for me 11 years ago. My mom died. My mom growing up, my mom and I, we didn't have the greatest relationship, but my mom came to know Jesus. I came to know Jesus. I thought that the Lord would give us this really, really great relationship here on earth. My mom died suddenly and unexpectedly on a, on a cruise. She had a brain aneurysm, had a stroke. But I just knew because I just knew God was going to heal her because he's going to give us this really, really great relationship here on earth. I drove from Florida up to Cleveland where my mom was in the hospital. I never got to have another conversation with my mom. The very next day, they pronounced my mom dead. God didn't come through like I thought he would come through. God, I thought you were going to restore this. I thought you were going to make it better. I thought you were going to fix it. I thought you were going to do all these things. And you know what my heart began to do? My heart began to back away from the Lord. Because I had this idea of what I thought Jesus was going to do in the midst of my circumstances, and he didn't do that. But Jesus actually, over time, began to lead me to the cross. He began to take me to the place where his love was undeniable. I couldn't trace what his hand was doing with my mom, but I could trust his heart because he stretched out his arms and he died for my sin and he made a way for me to be able to have life with God. Not only did he do that, he made a way for my mother to be able to have life with God. I was wanting something that was so temporary and so short-circuited, but God did something even more amazing. He gave me eternal life. He saved my mom. He made a way for us to be able to be a part of his kingdom forever. And I was backing away from God because temporary things on this earth didn't happen the way that I wanted to. But yet God in his greatness had done something even more amazing than I could even fathom. What are those moments in your life where you feel like God has disappointed you? God has let you down. It hasn't turned out the way you thought it should based on who you know God to be and the power you believe God to have. Maybe at this moment, just like where he pointed Peter to the cross, I need to point you to the cross because the cross is the place where the kingdom of God finds its fulfillment because without the cross, you can't be a part of my kingdom. Without the cross, we can't know the love of God. Without the cross, we can't have eternal life. Without the cross, we don't know the forgiveness of sins. Without the cross, we will never be reconciled to God. So sometimes we want to bypass the cross and we want to look at things here on earth. But Jesus wants us to remember that the cross is the greatest place where the glory of God was revealed and the love of God was shown to you and to I. And Satan will use whatever he can to distract us 
from God's perspective. He'll use whatever he can to get our eyes off of the Lord. But I want to admonish you today to keep listening to God. Keep drawing near to Jesus. Keep believing and trusting his heart even when you can't trace his hand in your circumstances. The enemy wants us to get focused on the temporary earthly things rather than seeing things from God's perspective and seeing the eternal things that God has brought in fruition for his people. As we live in our world today, as there are many cultural wars, this is kind of a side note, but as there are many cultural wars and different battles, whether we think of abortion or we think of history or we think of racism or we think of the marriage issue, sometimes we can put these things out in the forefront, but God always wants us to remember the cross. It's not about us arguing people to our side because somebody can have the right view of abortion and be on the wrong side of God because they've never accepted Jesus Christ and that is far worse than they end up in hell. Somebody can have the right view of marriage but they don't know Jesus Christ and they're on the wrong side of God and they end up one day facing the wrath of God. So as the church of God, we can't allow the secondary issues to get in the way of the cross because the cross is the place where people are reconciled to God and what people need more than anything is not a right view on abortion, a right view on marriage, a right view on race relations. They need a right relationship with God. And the only place that that happens is the cross of Jesus Christ. And if we get people to the cross and God's word is, is, is perpetuating in their minds and his spirit is at work in their hearts, we'll see ourselves siding with God on what he says about marriage, what he says about birth, what he says about race relations, of we are siding with God. But the first place is the cross. Don't allow the secondary issues to get in the place of the primary importance. And that's what Jesus wanted them to know. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But he wanted them to know that if you're going to live with God's perspective, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. It's countercultural. I had a picture last week I preached. I had a, a picture of a stream taking trash down one way, and the stream would just easily take the trash down. I had another picture of trout that were going against the grain. They were swimming upstream. As those that are children of Jesus Christ and followers of God, we're to be like trout. We're not to go with the whims of the world, the ways of the world, the values of the world, the opinions of the world. We are to go with God and we have been built to walk with him, to go upstream and to go towards the goal that he's called us to heavenward in Christ Jesus. But it's not easy because the popular way is flowing with the stream. The way that is hard and the narrow way is the way that leads to life and that's following after Jesus. But what I love is what Jesus says that if you're going to come after me, he doesn't say you go ahead, you lay all your chips to the table and then I'm going to let you know what I'm going to do with my hand. No, he says, I'm going to lay my hand down first. I'm going to push all my chips to the table. I'm going to show you how deeply I am invested in you. I'm going to lay down my entire life. I am God who created everything, yet I would humble myself and become a person. And, and even going lower, I would humble myself to death and I would die for you. I would die for you. I would put all my chips to the middle of the table to show how invested I am to living for you. And many of us may think that that was easy. But if you know Jesus as he, as he was on his way to that cross, there was a stop in the garden. And as Jesus was in that garden, the Bible says he was, he was sweating like sweats of blood. Drips of blood were coming from his head. And he says, Father, if there's any other way to win these people to yourself other than going to the cross, let me have that way. Take this cup away from me. Take it away from me. It wasn't easy for Jesus to go to the cross. His flesh did not want to go to that cross. But you know what he said? He said, God, it's not about me. It's about you, Father. It's about your glory. So if for you to be glorified, not my will, but your will be done. And for us, we got to look in the same manner. And if Jesus, who is equal with God the Father, would humble himself to the Father's will to die so that we could be brought into the family of God, how much more should we humble ourselves before him? How much more should we deny ourselves for the one who denied himself for us? 
He didn't have to do what he, what he did. He had every right to give us hell for our sin. He didn't have to leave heaven to come on a rescue mission for you and I. He didn't have to. He chose to. And he willingly went to the cross. How much more should we say, God, through your spirit, help me to deny the things that I want to do? Because life in its essence isn't about me. Life in its essence is about you. So help me to deny myself to take up my cross, to die to whatever I want, whatever I need to die to, to take up my cross. See, we think indulging our flesh brings us life. No, it leads to death. Dying to ourselves actually brings life because there's a life inside of me, Christ, and when I die, that life is what's lived through me with power and glory to face rejection, to be humiliated, to be talked about, to be ostracized. We all want to be in the in-group, but he says, take up your cross. Be willing to be rejected for me. I was rejected by men I created for you. Are you willing to be rejected for me? And even if we were to die for our faith, do we realize that we are in Christ and death can't even touch us anymore? And death becomes for the believer a portal to life. That when I'm absent from this body, I'm enjoying life more gloriously than I've ever enjoyed it before. Because I'll be in the presence of my king. Take up your cross and follow me. Follow him wherever he leads you. Wherever he leads you, why would you follow anyone else? Because there's only two sides. It's following the thief who comes to kill, steal, or to destroy. Or it's following the one who came to give you life and life more abundantly. Why would you follow anyone else we got to remember it's not about us it's all about God our life isn't about us for people to look at us and to see us and to think we're someone somebody can think I'm somebody and find themselves still ending up going to hell but if they meet Jesus he can reroute them and give them heaven and give them life and give them peace and give them forgiveness so why do we want it to be about us when there's only one name given unto men under heaven by which men must be saved. And it's not David Williams, it's Jesus Christ. Lastly, verses 25 through 27, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. He lastly wants us to realize that to live with God's perspective is to live with eternity in view. It's not living for this world, it's living for the world that's yet to come. He says, if anyone would save his life, if you're trying to hold on to your self-centered life in this world where it's about you, he says, if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. You're not going to be able to hold on to it. It's temporary. It's fading away. And if you live your life totally doing your thing rather than God's thing, you may lose the essence of life, eternal life itself. Because if you live your life in that way, it probably means that you didn't know the author of eternal life because you just radically abandoned yourself to live for you. And at the end of the day, you will lose it. But he says, those who lose their life for me shall truly find it. If you will lose your self-centered life in this world, you will find the essence of life. You will experience life in this world. You will experience joy in circumstances where you should have no joy. You will experience peace in circumstances where there should be no peace. You will experience forgiveness and love and hope. But, but, but at the end of it, you will experience eternal, everlasting communion with God. He says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? You know, I've never seen anyone at their funeral carrying everything behind them in one of those United Van Line trucks and taking everything and getting ready to put it in the ground because they're going to use it after they're done. What does it profit you to, to, to have this status and position and roles and chase after that? What does it profit you to have all the material things that the world says you need to get in order to be somebody? What does it profit you to have the finest women or men on your shoulders and doing with them whatever you want if at the end of the day you lose the thing that's most valuable to you your soul 
There is nothing more valuable than your soul. Jesus bought your soul with his blood. He bought you. You belong to him. Many of us are chasing after the things of the world rather than chasing after the God who ran us down from heaven to capture our soul and to bring us into an eternal relationship with him. And when Paul met Jesus Christ, it flipped the whole script for him. He says, I count everything in this world, all my status, all my accomplishments, everything I have, what people think about me, I count it as dung. Why? That I might find Christ, that I might have Christ and be found in him. What's the treasure of your life? Is it the temporary things that will fade? Is it the things that will forfeit and, and will bring you nothing? Or is it Christ? And then lastly, verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then it will pay each person according to what he has done. I can imagine when, when Jesus is saying this to Peter, there's a smile on his face. He's like, yeah, you said I'm the Christ. I'm the son of the living God. You're absolutely correct. I know I've thrown you a monkey wrench in some of these things that you're going to experience because I'm going to die. Life is going to be hard for you. But guess what? I am that king, and I'm more glorious than you could ever imagine. And I'm going to come back one day, and when I return, I'm going to return in my father's glory. And I'm going to return with the angels. And when I return, I'm going to be looking for a people that have been found faithful to me. I'm going to be looking for a people who realize that me and my kingdom were greater than the th anything that this world could offer. And when I find those people, I'm going to reward them. I'm going to bring them gifts. I'm going to invite them fully into my kingdom. That, that Jesus is coming back. And the one who is judged, who is taken from judgment hall to judgment hall, who is treated like a worm, though he is the God who created everything, the one who, is, who died on a cross of violent death is the one who was buried in the grave, but who rose from the grave, who ascended up to heaven, who's coming back, and he's going to be the judge. He's going to be the judge. He's going to be the one that everyone has to face. And are we going to live in this world for the attaboys of men that don't mean nothing for all of eternity? Or will we live in this world to one day hear the well done of God when he returns in the Father's glory with his angel? Will we realize that there's a day coming we're going to have to stand and give an account to our life before God? And this is even for those of us that know him. For those of us that know him, we're assured if we really know him of being in his kingdom, but it's going to be like a graduation day. It's going to be like that day where we'll find out who's the valedictorian, who's Kuma, Kuma Sumlad and, and all those other lords up there, that we're going to find out who those things are. And will I be ashamed at his coming because I chose to take the things that he gave me and invest them in temporary things of this world? Or will I have invested those things in the eternal things of God and be rewarded by him. You know, in this world, we're intrigued by the people who are rich, who are famous, who are influential, who are popular. That's who intrigues us. But one day in eternity, guess what we're going to be intrigued by? Those who were mistreated, those who were misunderstood, those who were rejected, those who were ostracized, those who were killed because of their love for their king because they recognized who he was and they recognized what he did and they recognized that their life wasn't their own and they recognized that their life was to show forth the reality of a God that was greater than them. So are you going to live for the dot of your 70, 80, 90 years? Or will you live for the line of eternity? Will you let your life make a difference for all of eternity because you chose it to invest it for this one who invested everything for you. You chose to lay it all down for him that he could use your life to show forth the reality of who he is to a world that desperately needs him, even as we do. Do you realize that the ultimate reality is going to be Christ and his kingdom? That the one who died is the one who was raised from the grave and the one whom the father said, therefore, Christ has been highly exalted. He has been given a name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth. There's a day coming when everybody's going to bow and they're going to see that he's the king. Will those of us today who know he's the king bow our knee to him today and live our lives for him now? And he's going to do everything he does for the glory of God the Father. 
and all of the stuff that we long for. One day we're going to look up and all the things we've walked through will mean nothing when we're in the glory of our king, when death is done away with, when darkness is done away with, when war is no more, when there are no more diseases, when there are no more shootings at in our schools or in our restaurants, when there are no more babies being aborted, when there are no more young girls being raped, when there is no more sex trafficking, when there is no more prostitution and all these different things, these vices and vows, we see in our world nothing but joy in the presence of Christ our King. That day when he wipes away every tear, that day when he brings about peace and joy and righteousness to a people of a kingdom that he's prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Will we be a people that's excited about him? Let me end with this. There are some of us that we know about the Lord. We say his name. We talk about him. But if we're honest, we really aren't living for him. We really haven't submitted to him. Life is still about us. It's not about Jesus, and we use Jesus when it's convenient. And Jesus had some words, some harsh words. In Matthew 7, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, if I really know him, if I really know him, then my life will be submitted to him. And I will live out his will on the earth. It's not me doing his will that saves me, but because I have been saved and my life has been transformed by him, that I willingly walk in what he wants. But he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Didn't we regularly attend church in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So let me ask you what Jesus asked them. Who do you say that Jesus, the Son of Man, is? Who do you really say who he is? Not just here as we're sitting on church on a Sunday morning where many of us made to say the same thing. What's your life say about Jesus? Do you really know him? Does your life reflect that fact that you know him? And if you do know him, what is it in your life that's causing you to hold back from him? What what is it that's causing you to say, God, I'm not going all the way in. But yet, as he's shown us his great love through the cross, as he's shown us the fact that he's walking with us every step along the way, he's calling us to confess, he's calling us to repent, he's calling us as his people to return to him. Let me pray. Well, Father, thank you. Thank you that we can only have a right perspective of life by knowing your son. Thank you, God, that knowing him is not just a a one-time thing, but it's a continual walk of listening to him, letting him show us what life really is about, letting him fill us with his spirit and guide us that we will live these lives for something bigger than us, that we will live these lives for you. We'll live them for your glory. We'll live them in light of eternity and not in the temporary things that we see. So, Father, have your way in your church. Have your way in our hearts. Be at work drawing us closer to you. Thank you for your mercy to us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.